Good morning, everyone. Turn, if you would, to Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. And uh, I was reminded this week uh, that uh, this is one of my favorite texts in all the Bible. Uh, for years, I've probably, I've probably done 75 to 100 uh, NFL and Major League Baseball chapel services where I spoke and uh, for both the home team, the team I was the chaplain of, the Resin Bengals, and also um, uh, the visiting team. And um, much of what I would do for the visiting team would be this talk uh, on this text. And I was reminded yesterday, I was talking to Josh by video, he was in, he's in Italy and on deployment, and I, he said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I told him, he said, I could give that sermon, I've heard it so much. Because I, I took my kids with me a lot, right? So it's been a family joke. I think what's remarkable about God's Word is that as I did a, a pretty deep dive of the last few weeks in this text uh, to see it in new and fresh ways. Uh, so very, very thankful for that. So Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. I read recently that in every major city for the past couple years, there's been a one-man play about the spiritual pilgrimage of C.S. Lewis. It's been getting rave reviews, so if it comes to Nashville, you may want to go see it. It's called C.S. Lewis on Stage, The Most Reluctant Convert. It is really the spiritual journey of this Oxford scholar who we know is famous for his books, the Scriptate Letters and uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, and how he famously abandoned atheism and became a Christ follower, became a Christian. In the middle of that journey, in the middle of that struggle, he writes these words, I now know there's another party in the affair. It feels as if I'm being hunted. Terrible things are happening to me. The spirit in quotation marks is on the offensive, it feels like, and behaving just like God. It is why that description of God that he often called God the hound of heaven in his own life and in the life of others is this picture of this God who in his sovereignty is consistently and compassionately pursues his people to bring them to himself and to make him make them like himself or to bring us to himself and to make us like himself he just comes after us and so the title this morning is the hound of heaven because this text is a classic in scripture of this picture of this relentless hound of heaven pursuing us in spite of us and so in light of that i took some creative uh, liberties to change our slide this morning to make it make us remember it more. Here we go. <laughs> the Hound of Heaven. So let's do a quick review. Monty did a great sermon last week in verses one through three to kick off this series as we teach through the book of Jonah. We've seen in these first three verses where the prophet. Jonah heard clearly the call of God. God said, Jonah, rise, go to Nineveh and call out against it because its evil has come up before me. And what did Jonah do? He did arise. He heard God. But instead of going to Nineveh, he took a 50-mile trip by foot to Joppa. Now, 
you got to really want to run from God if you're willing to walk 50 miles by foot, right? He went over 2,000 miles across the Mediterranean Sea to Tarshish or modern-day Spain. The scripture tells us he was trying to escape the very presence of God. <laughs> this just makes me laugh, right? Because here's the deal. Spain, at that point in time in the known world, if you look at a map, would have literally been considered on the other side of the earth. He is running to the others, like us running to China to escape the presence of the Lord. Poor delusional Jonah, one author wrote. Escaping the presence of the Lord is a lot like trying to shovel smoke with a rake, another one put it. Futility at its highest level. So we asked the question for us this morning to sort of set the table for us. And that is, and for me, have we ever tried to run from God? Whether through a location or a situation. Our plan and our way are better than God's way. We can deny the universal presence of God and act as if he is not present. He's not there. I think we do this, I know my own life, weekly, in conversation, in my thoughts, in my actions, our hearts flee from God, our eyes flee from God and think he's not there. In our decisions, we can flee from God. We flee to our own personal Tarshish in our businesses, with our neighbors, in our parenting. At the end of the day, you and I are all natural runners. We were born to run from the presence of God. So, in light of that, I think it will be helpful, though, to really look at why Jonah ran, humanly speaking and spiritually speaking. To understand this human side of why Jonah run, ran, I think it's important to sort of look at the historical context of Nineveh itself. Nineveh is now, we would know it, in Iraq as the modern-day city of Mosul. That's where we've heard that city's name through the wars over the years there. The king of Nineveh, Sennacherib, destroyed Jerusalem in 701 B.C. But over the next 40 to 50, 60 years, Jerusalem was re rebuilt. And now God is telling Jonah, if you think about it in context, to go there and tell Nineveh about this God who got Joseph, uh, Jonah later says in the book is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abandoned, uh, abounding in steadfast love. Now, Nineveh at that time was known, according to the prophet Nahum, as the city of bloodshed. It was the largest city in the world for over 50 years with 120,000 people. It was founded by Noah's rebellious grandson, uh, Nimrod, and it became the capital of the evil Assyrian Empire that we have seen throughout Isaiah and all through the scriptures that is at war with Israel. And really, still is at war with Israel. Like history never changes in that part of the world of the Mideast. One historian wrote this about the Ninevites uh, during the days of Jonah. He said, one of Ninevites' kings wrote this, speaking of his captors. I slaughter them with their blood. I dyed the mountain red like wool. 
Their young maidens I burned in the fire. I cut their throat like lambs and watched as their gullets and entrails ran down upon the earth. I pierced the man's chin with my dagger, and through his jaw I passed a rope, put a dog chain on him, and made him occupy a kennel. We hung Egyptian corpses on stakes and stripped off their skins and covered the city walls with them. So no wonder its evil had come up, as the text tells us, before Yahweh. And no wonder Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He had a good idea that it wouldn't end well. Add to that the fact that most prophets were told to speak out against the evil in surrounding countries, but to do so, most of them did so from the comfort of home. God is actually calling Jonah to go there on site and speak to them publicly, face to face. To get a clearer picture, it would be like Simon Wessenthal, the famous Jewish Holocaust survivor who saw 89 of his relatives, 89 family members killed by the Nazis during World War II. It would be like asking him to go to Germany and deliver a message of God's grace and mercy. A hard call, humanly speaking, for sure. But ultimate, and ultimately, the reason Jonah ran from God is because Jonah did not have the heart of God. There was a disconnect between the heart that motivates God and the heart that motivated Jonah. And when you and I run from God, it is the same reason. There's a disconnect of our heart from who God is and who we are. So the key question this morning is not if we run from God, but when we run from God, how does God respond to his people when they go in a rebellious act and AWOL from him? That's the key question. Look at verse four as we read. <clears throat> but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great temptest has come upon you. 
Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, they hurled him to the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So this morning, uh, what I want to do is just walk us through the text, verse by verse by verse, and then give us two implications for the Jonah that's in us all. When we start with verse 4, it starts with, but the Lord. And I thought, is there any more beautiful three-word phrase in all of the scripture that's, that's more beautiful than the phrase, but the Lord? You and I can think of all the times in, that, in our life that, that but the Lord came into play for us. Without that but the Lord working on our behalf. And so here's what it tells us in verse 4. Uh, every move in wrestling, there's a counter move. Chad Vincent's dad was my wrestling coach in high school. He said it a thousand times. And we need to understand that every move in the life of a, of a believer, God has a counter move to, to when we try to flee his presence. And here, the counter move is he actually hurls a storm. He throws our storm on the sea. Jonah runs. God says, okay. And here comes the storm. A storm so furious, the text tells us, that experienced sailors are afraid. Like that is hard to make a sailor who spends his life at sea afraid. He's seen it all. He's done it all. And here they, it's that bad as afraid. This, this, this Hebrew word hurl has this idea of this intensity that shows God's anger toward Jonah and that it is Yahweh who has total control over all creation. So the first thing that God does, he comes on this compassionate but relentless chase down of Jonah through a storm. And then secondly, he comes through a compassionate, relentless chase down of Jonah through sailors. Look at verse 5. The fear of the sailors caused them to cry out to their own gods. Plural. Gods. Where any God that's out there, this personal God, maybe this family God of theirs, in desperation, here's what it says. Here's the second use of hurl. With this intensity, they just started chunking the cargo off the ship. And in doing that, they were really saying, Look, I don't care about the cash we're going to make. We're going to die here. That's in how intense this situation is. When I think about this scene, I think about the movie. You heard it, seen the movie, The Perfect Storm? Remember the intensity there? That's what this world hurl is communicating here. These polytheistic sailors were crying out through their own particular God so they would not die. Now, they did not think that their personal God had caused this storm, but they were thinking if they could call out to their personal gods that those gods may have some kind of influence on the actual God who did cause the storm. The God who had become angry enough to send it. They are calling out for assistance 
not in repentance. Their thought was, the more contacts we have with the gods, the better our chances are that we will survive this storm, that we will not die. They were in a total panic, a frantic panic. But everyone wasn't panicking. Everyone wasn't frantic. The text tells us Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. I read this week in my study that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, in that there was a note in one of the translations that said, Jonah was snoring. <laughs> I mean, look, it just can't get even, how many snores in here? Got some snores in here? I'm a snorer, yeah. It can't get any plainer than that. Jonah was asleep. Now, here's what we've seen so far in our text in Jonah 1. In verse 3, it says twice, Jonah went down to Joppa. Then he went down onto the ship and got on the ship. And here in verse 5, the author again uses the word down. He says he goes down into the hold of the, of the ship. When you and I are fleeing God, it is guaranteed that we are going down, down, down. Farther away, darker, darker, darker. I think the author also wants to see the contrast between the sailor's action and Jonah's inaction. He was doing nothing. It is worth noting here too, for us, just in terms of application, that Jonah's sin and clear disobedience of the command of God has now not only involved him, put him in danger, but has dangerously involved the lives of others, the sailors, in his attempt to escape and therefore sin, he has endangered these other men who had no idea what was going on. I think much of my sin and your sin is an attempt to escape from the clear call of God's word to us. And it may be carried out our sin in isolation, but our sin always affects others. That's the thing that I forget. The one we've sinned against, our spouses, our families, our friends, our church. Sin may be executed in isolation, but it never stays isolated. Sin is a community affair. There's always a trail of bloodied bodies when we sin that we've left behind us. It is true here in Jonah. Verse 6. These polyistic sailors, since they believed that the more contacts made with God, the better. So the captain's looking around and saying, well, where's Jonah? Because we need him crying out to his God too. So he goes down in the hull of the boat and he says, Jonah, what in the heck's wrong with you? We're about to die and you're sleeping. The captain uses this word as God's sovereignty. The author is saying he, 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 he prompts us here to see that the hound of heaven is still on the chase and the captain just happens, coincidence, not, not a coincidence, uses the same word, arise. This deja vu moment, Jonah, sound asleep, snoring. The captain comes and the first words he hears from the captain is, arise. Huh, is that God again? <laughs> and the captain says, and cry out to your God, whoever that may be. 
There's a stark reality here. A non-believer is telling a believer to cry out to God. The author wants us to know that Jonah here, he's not only physically asleep, but he's spiritually asleep. Paul's words in Ephesians 5 that say, Awake, O sleeper, and walk carefully could be used here. Verse 7. So the sailors cast or roll dice, cast lots or roll dice so they can single out before all the deities why this storm has been hurled on them. And the bottom line, they're trying to find out whose fault of this is this. And no surprise, <laughs> the lot falls on Jonah. Duh, right? Like the hound is on the loose. He's coming He's coming after Jonah. He is relentless. The man is on the run and God is on the chase. The lot falls on Jonah. Verse 8, it's interrogation time. When they find that out, they start asking questions. What do you do? Where are you from? What is your country? And what is your ethnic identity? And in verse 9, he takes up the last question first. And he answers their questions, listen to this, with straight up, pure Biblical orthodoxy. Jonah's response. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah could not have answered their questions better or more correctly. If we were grading his doctrinal response, we would say, don't Jonah got a hundred A plus plus on his doctrine tests, and yet, in the very moment, he is failing miserably at orthopraxy. He is failing miserably, miserably, what did I say? <laughs> I am failing miserably at saying miserably. <laughs> he is failing at the how one is living test. Orthodoxy does not guarantee orthopraxy. Knowing the scriptures do not guarantee that we obey them. That's important to know, but it's no guarantee. Do not, say this to myself and to, to you, do not substitute your biblical knowledge. Just because you have biblical knowledge, it means that you're okay. I, I have said on many occasions with people in conversations and it's obvious through their own lips that they are living in gross, rebellious, unrepentant, repetitive sins that is causing a nightmare and chaos for all the people around them that love and care for them. And in the very midst of that, they are defiant they are frustrated that I would even engage that, and yet they tell me with all they, their heart they love Jesus. They are delusional when they're doing that, and so is Jonah here. He is delusional at this point. Verse 10 says, Now the sailors really afraid when they hear that Jonah has attempted to flee from the God who has control of all the sea and all the land. So now Jonah and the sailors find themselves face to face with a God with unlimited power. It's coming down to the crux here. Verses 11 and 12. So the sailors asked a very practical question. What do they need to do to calm the raging sea? And Jonah says, 
Do the same thing that the Lord has done in hurling the storm. Do the same thing you, the sailors, did in hurling the cargo overboard and also hurl me into the sea. We need to note, we'll see this later in the book. We'll see how this unpacks itself with Jonah's heart. But Jonah is not repenting here. He simply wants the circumstances to change. His choice to go overboard rather than repent at least suggests to us that he'd rather die than change course. It at, at least is possible that he'd rather die than the Gentiles hear of the mercy and grace of Yahweh. At this point, Jonah's, Jonah's motives are not really fully visible. But I want to insert those thoughts for you as we get later into the book. Verse 13, the sailors, they're not quite trusting in Jonah's word that that if they throw him over, Yahweh will stop the raging sea. Secondly, they are filled with expertise and self-will. They're professional sailors, so they sort of hear it, but then they say, no, we can get to shore, and they, what do they do? They keep rowing, and <laughs> they, they keep rowing, and they cannot row against the revealed will and word of God. It's futile. The storm gets worse. They can't go anywhere. Verse 14, finally the non-believers get to the end of themselves and pray to the only true God, Yahweh. Notice the pagan sailors pray before the believer Jonah prays. This is the climax of chapter one as it climbs the mountain here. Something is happening. They cry for help from the only one who can help them. And then in verses 15 and 16, there's this big splash. Jonah hits the water. Scripture tells us immediately the sea stops raging. And the next, the pagan sailors were converted and worshiped the God of Israel. Most commentators and scholars will say this was a conversion experience for the polytheistic pagan sailors. Some say it wasn't, but I think it was. As I studied it, the phrase to fear God here is used consistently in the Old Testament to describe those who know and maintain and have a healthy relationship with Yahweh. Amazing here that God used a believer in sin to bring non-believers to faith because he can do as he pleases. He can do what he wants and how he wants there's a contrast, though, I think the writer wants us to look at. It illustrates for us what true faith in God looks like. One is trust and worship in his presence. The sailors trusted God, and they stopped and fell on their face and worshiped. Jonah did not trust God, and he ran from his presence. So we have this text laid out. And obviously, there's applications here. For me, for you, hopefully as we went through it. But let's look at two specific, in light of our focus this year, outward with the mission, two very specific implications for the Jonah in all of us. The first one is Jonah is detached, I think, from his surroundings. Jonah, we need to understand, he's been doing life in the Hebrew bubble. Not the church bubble, but the Hebrew bubble, right? 
We have seen God call them directly with the words arise and then repeated those words to the captain's lips again, arise. Wake up, Jonah. But what we see with Jonah is he loves the horizontal, both physically and spiritually. And because of that, he is for sure detached from the storm that is raging outside his little bubble. Now, if you and I are awake spiritually, we are fully aware that there is a storm that is raging outside of our Christian bubble or community. We know just by glancing at the news, just by reading a newspaper, just by talking with people where we live, work, and play, we know people are doing what is right in their own eyes. The decadence of our times is undeniable. There is a storm out there. But here's what Jonah did. He stayed in his Hebrew bubble, and from a distance, he branded in his own mind the people of Nineveh as evil and immoral. And they were. But he failed to recognize that this evil and immorality is preceded by being disconnected from the God of the universe. Ravi Zacharias sums this, sums this up when he says, Immorality in our streets is because there's irreverence in our hearts toward God. Evil and immorality is simply symptomatic. That is why we can't change morality by changing our laws. It is the heart that must change, and only Christ and the gospel can do that. This kind of evil that the storm represents is just not a denial of spiritual, of the spiritual, but a denial of God himself and what humans were meant to be. So for us, in some ways, these are dual meaning times, meaning they are exciting for us that there's a storm that we get to engage, but also grieving times for us. If we understand what sin has done in our life and the pain it has caused us and those around us, then we see those out in the storm, what it does to them. And that in some ways is what Jonah has missed. It should affect him, it should affect us to get out of our bubble and motivate us to be a part of the restoration of all things. God wanted Jonah and wants us in some ways to pull back and to see the lens or to see the world with the widest possible lens to see all of humanity broken and sinful and in judgment unless repentance comes. And then to say they need to know. Secondly, I think Jonah is detached from his message. I think we can be detached from our message. Jonah has been so close all his life, growing up. Many have said Jonah actually grew up playing with the kids of other prophets. How about that environment? <laughs> right, a biblical environment. Pretty good one, right? Jonah grows up in that environment, and he's so close to the teaching and proclamation of the Word of God that he never bothered or either forgot to get to the heart of his message and its implications for the world. 
He rejoiced in some ways that he was an insider, but forgot that this privilege to know God has a responsibility to make God known to all the nations of the earth. So he loves this idea of being an insider, to know the only true God, to be a Jew, to be a Hebrew, to know Yahweh. But that privilege didn't, didn't motivate him to take this message outward. I think for you and I, we're, we're in a danger. We can be surrounded by truth without ever applying it to our own life and without ever sharing it with those in the storm who do not know. I remember very specifically Bill Bright, the founder and president of Campus Crusade for Christ, standing before a group of staff members in an interview. And as they talked about what's going on in the world, he began to weep. And he said, they just don't know. They just don't know. If only they knew. That's what drove him. That's what woke him up at night. That's what drove his whole life, that the world would know this message. Jonah is detached from that. One writer I read this week said, go to church once a week and no one pays attention. Worship God seven days a week and you become very strange. And I know how that feels and I haven't done it perfectly, but when you're in the storm, when you're out there and you're making Christ known, even in gentleness and kindness, and you stand for God in the gospel and you engage people conversationally, you're going to take some hits and they're going to think you're strange and he's crazy. God, they're so nice. His wife's so nice, but he's crazy, right? We need to remember that coming to Christ is not just a welcome to the family of God and forgiveness party. It is to be a part of something greater than yourself. God's way, God's call, God's plan, God's redemptive work in the world. So we ask this basic question. Do you and I struggle with being gracious with the notorious sinner in the way God has been gracious to you? George Whitfield. A famous preacher answered our question. When you hear of a great sinner, beg with all your might for Jesus Christ to convert him and make him a monument of his grace and then pray that God might use you to do that. Jonah was detached from this gracious message. Here's some double good news for us. In the midst of Jonah's arrogant rebellion, God does not turn from Jonah. He does not say to Jonah, okay, you want to run? Have it your way. And I love this about God. But instead, he harnesses the very forces of nature and men, and he comes after him with this relentless, consistent Chase down pursuit of a rebellious sinner. Not to destroy him when he catches him, but to turn him and look into his eyes and extend grace. Come home. Which really points us to a second Jonah who was sent to people who despised the message, 
was sent to a foreign land. And this Jonah, the Lord Jesus himself, did not run from God, but instead said to God the Father, I will arise, I will go, I will preach, and I will give my life so there will be hope for runners like all of us. The hound of heaven is on the loose. Here's the question this morning for you. Are you running from God? If you are, how is God chasing you? Secondly, have you run from God? The answer is yes. Okay. Take a minute to think back to his gracious pursuit of you in spite of you. That makes us trust and worship and stay in his presence in the future. Take a minute to ask and answer those two questions.